Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 17. We are, uh, at this time, as a church family, we're journeying through some of the great chapters of the Bible. And I have to tell you, as we sat down, we began to think about where the Lord would have us to go and what were some of the commonly accepted or known as some of the great chapters of the Bible. This one uh, literally just uh, jumped off of the page to me, and I have been excited. I'm always excited to preach God's Word, but I've been really excited to preach uh, from this chapter to our church family. And 1 Samuel 17 is one of the great, truly great chapters in all of the Bible, and uh, Probably some of you know already what takes place without even looking at the bulletin this morning, but in the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, we discover the great story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. I want you, if you would, look with me in verse number one. We'll begin reading in verse number one. This is a lengthy chapter, so we will not take time to read all 58 verses, but we'll pull some thoughts out of many of them as we walk through this particular chapter this morning. But look with me in verse number one. The Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass Upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how these stories that are centuries old, generations old, how they still resonate with us today. Lord, this is truly one of the great, great conflicts, one of the great stories in all of the Bible. And as such, it teaches us some great lessons for today, where we're living and what we're dealing with. Help us, Lord, to draw out some of these truths that are found in this particular story today. And I pray, Lord, that the folks would leave here with hope. And no matter what it is that they're facing in life, whatever giant may be surrounding them or maybe confronting them, maybe wanting to fight with them, Lord, that they can understand that through your power and through your spirit, Lord, they can overcome all things. As the Bible says there in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. 
Help us today, we pray in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think most of us would agree that this is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible, the story of David and Goliath. In fact, you'll find uh, that even people who have very little knowledge or understanding of the Bible, they're familiar with this story. Oh, there's several stories like that. I, I suppose that uh, the Red Sea crossing would be one of them, and no doubt Jonah being swallowed by the whale would be another story that uh, people would be quite familiar with, though they have very little understanding or knowledge of the Bible. These stories sort of transcend biblical knowledge and understanding to almost in a lot of people's minds they sort of view them as almost fairy tales. Like, yeah, this is a great story to tell our children, an adventurous story. But I want you to know something here this morning. This is no fairy tale. This is a true story. This really happened. God really used this young man to defeat this giant. And, and then I, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, David in his life, you have a life of uh, 75, 80 years perhaps. And David in his life is known for two things. We know him for David and Goliath, his greatest achievement, his greatest victory, his greatest battle, the greatest day of his life, and it just sort of rolls off our tongue, and we're familiar with it. And yet, if you have, if you have any biblical knowledge at all, you also know that David is known for his worst day as well. There's David and Goliath, and then, of course, there's David and Bathsheba. Yeah, that's the, the way it is. Can I say that we are reminded that you and I are also often judged uh, by, by our greatest successes or our greatest failure. And sometimes when people think of us, they think of both. They think of both. Some of you around here, you remember me as a kid. And so when you think of me, you think, yeah, he's our pastor. He's also that little jerk kid that ran around here and did this or did that when he was that when he was 12 or 13 and and uh, and I have to bear that and and the truth of the matter is most of you you have to bear something like that at all as well perhaps maybe at work Oh yeah, that's so and so. They're the ones that made this process a little, a little better. They streamlined some things here, or perhaps maybe they saved a life on this day. But yeah, he's also the guy that nearly caused us to go bankrupt at the same time, you know? And, and uh, in your marriage, in your marriage, you're known by the same thing. Your wife looks at you and she says, oh, he's my knight in shining armor. But he's also the dumbest guy I've ever met in my life, you know, and some of the things that he's done over the years and some of the messes that he has created in our home and, and some of the things that he's gotten us involved in. And that's just the way oftentimes life is. Um, can, I, can I just encourage you uh, to consider that great victories and great accomplishments and great successes, they do not negate nor do they insulate us from great failures, you know, a lot of times we walk around and we like to think of our greatest successes and we like to kind of bury really deep, we like to bury our greatest failures. We don't like to think about those things. Or we, or we sometimes think, you know, I'm above that. I, I would never be guilty of such activity or being involved in such things. And I just want to remind you that though David slew Goliath, a giant of, the, of a man, now think about this, the devil kept on coming. He kept on coming. Until he found a giant that could slay David. Isn't it interesting that a, a man who was nearly 10 feet tall could not do what perhaps a little gal, maybe that was 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, or 5'7", could do all those years later? 
which is bring David down and destroy his life and, and, and really cause us to think a lot different thoughts toward David and who he was as a man. And can I say this, that the devil has not given up, he has not changed his tactics, and he desperately desires to do the same thing in your life as well. He will not rest. He will not rest until he has found a way, until he has found a path to defeat you and to bring you low. The story of David and Goliath, it connects with people. Here's why it's such a well-known story. is because it's a story of boundless hope. You see, David didn't belong there that day. He had no business being there. He wasn't supposed to be there that day. He, did, he, certainly, he certainly did not belong on a battlefield with a soldier of Goliath's strength. And he did not deserve, at the end of the day, he did not deserve to stand there holding Goliath's head victorious and for his name to go down in Hebrew lore for the rest of time and the rest of eternity. David didn't belong anywhere in that place. But, but listen, that is exactly how the day unfolded. Uh, people cling to this story. Here's why. Because it gives them hope that, that though they are overmatched and overwhelmed and, uh, and, and that the, the, the odds are greatly stacked against them, they read a story like this and they think to themselves, well, David was the same way. And if David can emerge victorious, if David could find a secret strength, if David could operate through the power of God and overcome some massive enemy or some massive giant, well, maybe I can as well. For Bible believers, however, And for Christ followers, there is so much more to be learned here beyond just conquering our fears and overcoming some giant or some obstacle in our lives. I believe there's some really profound and great truths that the Lord teaches us through this conflict between David and Goliath. This message is going to be a little different than perhaps the normal message would be. For one thing, it has six points, and you're getting really nervous. That's why we start the service at 10.15 now, so that we can go a little bit longer. No, we're, we're going we're gonna to move through these things as quickly as possible. But I do want to share with you six great truths that we learn from this story of David and Goliath in one of his great chapters of the Bible. Let me say, number one, that your days of great victory are usually followed by days of potentially overwhelming defeat. Your days of great victory are usually followed by days of potentially overwhelming defeat. Now the description given of Goliath is an impressive one. We read through it and we know, uh, we know the story and so we know he's a giant, but just how big is this guy? And these measurements that are given to describe some of his armor, what exactly does this mean? Well, let me try to help you understand it. Bible scholars judge a little differently re- regarding Goliath's overall size or, the, or, or his height. But the range of his height is determined to be anywhere between nine feet and six inches tall to, to, to as tall as maybe even 11 feet, 10 inches tall. Now let that sink in for just a moment. If you were to go to a basketball gymnasium and you were to stand uh, by a basketball hoop, you would feel very, very small and insignificant. In fact, the vast majority of us in this room, try as we might, uh, can, never, can never with our own skill and ability, can never touch a basketball, a basketball rim. And yet, and yet, if these Bible scholars are correct, and what the Bible gives us here, then we discover that Goliath is nearly, is nearly 10 feet tall. It's possible he's even taller than that. He was a massive man. The Bible indicates that his breastplate, according to verse number five, in other words, the, uh, the, the, the armor that he wore on his, on his chest area, that it would have weighed 157 pounds. 
Now think about that for a moment. What kind of man do you have to be? What, what kind of size do you have to be to walk around uh, in, a, in, a, in a battle uh, environment and to feel comfortable wearing armor that weighs uh, over 150 pounds? The Bible tells us that the head of his spear, the, the tip of his spear, it weighed between 17 and 18 pounds, according to verse number 7. His spear is described as a weaver's beam. And the Bible tells us that his legs were covered with brass. And here's why they believe that he wore brass on his legs is because in battle, most men, the average man, would only be able to, uh, to get to about the, the height of his legs. And so he wore some protection on his legs because that's the closest that a man, a normal-sized man, could get to him. All of this, all of this was done, of course, to protect him in battle, but the truth of the matter is he didn't need a whole lot of protection because as we discover in our text, nobody wanted to fight him. No one wanted to mess with Goliath, this champion of Gath. In fact, every day he came out and he defied Israel and he defied Israel's God. And every day the armies of Israel fled from him in fear. And I don't know about you, but I love, I love verse number 12. I love how David's name is just sort of casually inserted into the story. Bible's talking about Goliath and this mountain of a man and what he's doing and how he's defying the armies of the living God. And then the writer of 1 Samuel, he says, now David, now David, that I suppose most of us would, would not want to be in that verse because that means that we're going to be at the center of this story. Somehow, some way, our lives are going are to connect with the life of this giant. And, and if you're thinking what I'm thinking, that's not going to end real well. Now, now David David, again, is casually inserted into this narrative because he's going to play a major role in Goliath's defeat. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to go back a chapter, and for the sake of time, we, don't, we, we can't do that, but if you were to go back a chapter, we discover that it reveals David being anointed to be the next king of Israel. Now, that had to have been a thrilling day, don't you suppose? I mean, I think, I think uh, just, as most, just, just as most gals, at least over, over time, uh, they dream of one day being a wife and a mommy, most men think they're going to rule the world someday. And then reality strikes, and we realize if I can, if I can rule a McDonald's, I'll be happy, you know. And, and, uh, and so here, here's David. He's going through life. He's, he's just working as a simple shepherd there in the, in, in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, one day, a prophet shows up in his hometown. And the prophet approaches his dad and says, for whatever reason, God has sent me to this town, and not just to this town in particular, but to you and your family in general. And he's told me, he's told me that the next king of Israel, now keep this hush-hush because the, the, the current king of Israel won't be real thrilled if he finds out about this, but he's told me that one of your boys is going to be the next king to sit on the throne of Israel. And, uh, and so Jesse, he begins to parade his sons. Remember in this text, we found that Jesse had eight sons. And he begins to parade his sons in front of the man. And, and every one of the sons, God said, nope, that's not the one. Nope, that's not the one. Nope, that's not the one. Until eventually, until finally, we come down to the final son. In fact, he hasn't even been thought of at this point in time. And Samuel says, is there another boy in this house? And Jesse says, well, there is. But he's out in the fields. And Samuel says, send someone for him. We will not sit down. We will not rest. We will not eat until we've met this final son. Well, that son was David. Somebody ran out to get David in the field. Who knows how far away he was at this point in time. And they said, listen, listen, David, leave your sheep, leave your lambs, leave everything you're doing. Come with me. There's a man of God that wants to see you. 
David runs in from the field and he enters into the home where Samuel and his father were. And all of a sudden, uh, God speaks to Samuel's heart and God says, this is the one. This is the next king of Israel. The Bible tells us that Samuel pulled out a horn of anointing oil and he, he brought David near and he poured that over his head. And he said, listen, you're going to be the next king of the nation of Israel. I got to think that had to be a thrilling day for David. Had to be a thrilling day for his daddy. I mean, one can imagine David maybe that night pillowing his head, dreaming of what it's going to be like when he's king someday. I'm going to maybe have a palace, and, and I'm going to have a queen. I'm going to have an army that does what I ask them to do, and I'm going to have servants, and, and I'm going to have wealth, and I'm going to have riches, and I'm going to have power and fame and prestige. Oh, what a great Davis is. I don't know when it's going to happen, but someday soon I'm going to sit on the throne of the nation of Israel, and I'm going to be king. While we do not know how much time passed between 1 Samuel 16 And what takes place on this day in 1 Samuel 17, we do learn, don't we? That we often in life experience days of great victory, and yet yet usually closely followed on the heels of great victory and celebration accomplishment are, are, are usually days of potentially overwhelming defeat. With David being hand-chosen by God for this specific purpose to sit on the throne of Israel and to lead God's people, listen, the devil sets his sights on David to kill him, placing David in a most vulnerable spot. You may think to yourself, you know, I believe God's got his hand upon my life, and I believe God's given me a purpose, and, and God's given me a goal to reach, and understand this, that's wonderful, that's great, and I believe God has a purpose and a plan and a goal for every life of every person seated in here, but the moment, the moment that you acknowledge that, and the moment that you come to that understanding is the moment that the devil says, I'm going to keep him from accomplishing that purpose. I'm going to keep him from accomplishing that plan or for accomplishing that goal. Oh yes, your days of great victory are usually followed by days of potentially overwhelming defeat. Number two, let me say this, your enemy, your enemy is usually far superior to you. Your enemy is usually far superior to you. The Bible identifies David's enemy as a champion. Webster's Dictionary defines a champion as a hero, a brave warrior, We think of a champion as someone who has achieved past success in a contest or duel. Goliath's reputation, coupled with his unusual size, led all Israel to be filled with fear. Oh, listen, Goliath is the ultimate champion because he's never lost. You see, to lose when in, in, the, in the contest that Goliath was fighting in wasn't just to, you know, have your tail tucked between your legs as you make your way home at night. No, to lose, to lose in the contest that Goliath's involved in is to be, is to be buried. Because Goliath is fighting to the death. He says as much in the text, doesn't he? He says, let him come out and fight me. And if I kill him, then you'll be our servants. If he kills me, then we'll be your servants. But these are the stakes. This is the game that we're, that we're playing. Some of you like to go out and go bowling or maybe play a game of golf or do something competitive like that. Maybe enjoy a, a nice game of Uno or something like that in the home. And you understand, you're just playing for bragging rights, you're playing for pride, just trying to have a nice time and, and, and that sort of thing. But this contest is a little different. You get involved in this contest, there's a good chance that you're not going home at night. You're never going home again. You're never going to see your family again. And Goliath was such a champion that he had never lost. David's place, however, was with the sheep. David, from a surface level, as we look at him, he didn't appear to be much of a champion, does he? 
In fact, he had his father not wanted a report from the front lines. David would not have even been there that day. He was not a champion at this point. David was a shepherd of low reputation, even among his own family when his father had to be reminded, oh yeah, we do have an eighth son. I guess we better send for him and see if maybe he might be the next king. It's the kind of reputation that David had prior to all of this. Can I, can I just help you understand your enemy? Listen, your enemy has been carefully designed by the ultimate enemy, who is the devil, to be as intimidating as possible. Your flesh, listen, your flesh, my flesh, it craves comfort. It craves ease. It, it craves, you know, good days as opposed to difficult days or challenging days. And as a result, uh, your flesh will often recoil at the sight of an enemy, especially a sight, the sight of an enemy Goliath's size uh, and, 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 and an enemy that is superior. And if you and I, listen, if you and I are going to be successful and conquer our enemies, we must first overcome this fear. We must understand, as powerful as you might think you are, and I hope that you don't find yourself to be all that powerful because the moment that you start to think of yourself, more highly than you ought to think is the moment that you're in trouble. I hope that you wake up every day and understand I am way in over my head. I am overmatched. I have no chance to be successful except, except for the God of heaven come alongside of me and give me deliverance and give me victory. The armies of Israel, they failed because of Goliath's perceived superiority. David had no business being on this battlefield, much less winning. His own countrymen thought he was crazy, but David was not at all deterred by the appearance of the thing. And I'm begging you, as you look at the Goliaths in front of you, as you look at the giants, as you look at the obstacles and the challenges in front of you, oh, they look overwhelming. They look to be superior. But remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. With God, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Oh, your, your enemy is usually far superior to you, but that's okay. That's okay because your God is superior to your enemy every single time. Can I say number three, that your desire, your desire to engage with the enemy is usually misunderstood as pride and arrogance. Your desire to, to confront the enemy and to overcome whatever the enemy is doing in your life, whatever the obstacle is that is in front of you, many times it is misunderstood by those who are closest to you as, as the, an idea of, oh, just, you're, just, you're just filled with pride and you're just arrogant. David arrives at the battlefield that day and he sees Goliath doing what he does and he begins to inquire about this man. Who is he? Where does he come from? And why hasn't anybody done anything about this? And what is, the, uh, what, what is the, uh, the reward for someone who takes down this great man? And, and, and is, there not a, is there not a man is, who will stand up and who will deliver us from this, from this evil man who is cursing our God and saying all of these things? His brother Eliab hears David talking this way. Eliab confronts David with all, now think about this, Eliab confronts David with all of the strength and all of the rage that should have been directed at Goliath. You ever start to think about that? I mean, who, who should they have all been angry with in this story? They should have been mad at Goliath, right? He's making their lives miserable. He's humiliating them on a daily basis. He is cursing the name of God, the great God who led them out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea. And yet, and yet when David begins to inquire, who is this man and what's going to be done about him? Eliab looks at David and Eliab gets mad at David. I just discovered the devil is really, really good. He's masterful 
at getting us to turn on family and friends while refusing to engage with the actual foe. I've seen that happen before. Instead of, instead of going after the real problem, we turn, on, we turn on people that we're supposed to love and people that we're supposed to care about. Eliab used the following tactics. Look, look with me in verse number 28. He's, he does three things here. He does three things in, in an attempt to, uh, because he misunderstands David's desire to engage with the enemy for pride and arrogance. Number one, he belittled David. Do you see that there? He belittled David. Look at verse number 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Eliab, why don't you have any anger towards Goliath? But his anger is kindled against David. And he said, why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now, you have to have a, you have to have a brother to understand what's happening here. And I've got two of them. And uh, you got to have a sibling. Some of you, maybe you grew up in a home in which you, you were an only child. And so maybe this is a little foreign to you. But uh, when you've got brothers, you know, there is a, there's, a, uh, there's a battle that is always going on. And, and, and one, of the things, one of the things that you have to do, you got to understand this. I'm trying to teach you some things here, right? One of the things that you've got to do is you've got you've to take your brother and you've got to belittle him as much as you possibly can. Whatever accomplishments he's accomplished, whatever good things he's done, you've got to bring him low. Now, you understand I'm kidding a little bit, but that's what's happening here. Eliab looks at David and he says, what are you doing here? And, and, and what about, what about those, a couple, those couple of sheep that you keep your eye on? Did you, did you take care of them? Well, you know that little insignificant job? We're out here doing the important things, but, but you think you should be here? And, 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 and did, you leave, did you leave those few insignificant sheep in the, in the wilderness with someone? I mean, he is belittling David. He's trying to make David feel like he is below him and that the job he typically did was insignificant and worthless. Eliab insults David and reminds him, listen, he reminds him, listen, David, no matter what you do today, no matter what you do today, you will always, always be nothing more than just an insignificant shepherd. That's what, that's what Eliab's doing. He is belittling David. He says, no matter what you accomplish today, you just remember, I'll always be older than you. I'll always be bigger than you. I'll always be more significant to, than you. I'm the oldest in the family, and you'll, be, and you'll never be anything more than just a shepherd. He belittled David. Notice, notice, secondly, he judged David's motives. Look, it says, it goes a little bit further. With whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. He thought he knew what was in David's heart. He was certain that David was acting in pride and that his heart was wicked and naughty. You know, be careful about that. You know, we can, I suppose we can judge people's actions. The Bible tells us by their fruits you shall know them. You can judge actions, but be careful about judging motives. Sometimes we'll say things like, well, I know, I know what he's thinking. I know why he did that. The truth of the matter is you have no idea why people do what they do. You, you don't know what people are thinking unless you can get inside their mind, unless they have truly communicated and opened up to you that this is what I'm thinking and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. The truth of the matter is you and I really don't know what people are thinking and what their motives are. Just as we don't know those about other people, Eliab could not have known that about David. Eliab could not have known that David was just acting in pride and that his heart was naughty. That's what he accuses him of. He, he judges David's motives. Notice, thirdly, he accused David of acting in the spirit of self-interest. 
You know, I, I had a discovery this week as I was studying this passage of scripture. I think I know what's going on here. Now, I can't be dogmatic about it because the Bible doesn't specifically say, but don't you suppose that maybe David's older brothers were a little jealous? I mean, don't you think that, you know, they, they thought to themselves, you know, surely if, if there's a king coming from this house, it's gonna be me. And when Samuel looked and, and Samuel said, no, you are, you are not to be the next king of Israel. Don't you suppose that was a little bit of a blow to their pride? And, and, when, and when he went all the way down and he finally come to the eighth and the youngest of David's sons, for them to stand there and watch as David knelt in front of Samuel and Samuel took that horn of, of anointing oil and poured it over David's head, don't you suppose that was a tough pill for them to swallow? To watch as their younger brother, their kid brother, that, that little insignificant shepherd who has those few sheep out in the wilderness, to think that he's going to be the next king I suppose that had to ruffle some of their feathers, don't you think? And here he accuses David of acting in the spirit of self-interest. Look what he says at the end of the verse. He says, thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. You know what he's thinking? He's thinking, listen, you've been anointed to be the next king. And I know exactly what you're doing. You're, you're here. You're here to kind of scope things out a little bit. You're here to see how all of this works. You're here to watch Saul as he's the commander-in-chief of this army. And perhaps maybe, maybe you're even here to do something legendary today so that you can sway the hearts of the people in your, in, in your favor. Oh, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make your name great. And he accuses David, doesn't he, of acting in the spirit of self-interest. You're not really here to check on us. You're not really here to see how the battle is going so you can go back and report to dad. No, no, you've weaseled your way in here so that you could see how all of this works so that you can prepare yourself for the day that you sit on that throne. You can safely assume that your strides to face your enemies and overcome your giants will be misunderstood by some and they will not hesitate. They will not hesitate to tell you what they think and even believe these things though they may be the furthest thing from the truth. Can I say number four, your past trials are usually preparing you for bigger trials in the future. I think we learn from this story that your past trials, my past trials, are usually nothing more than proving grounds preparing us for a future trial that will be much bigger and much greater. See, in verses 32 to 37, Saul brings David in. David says, I'll fight him. I'll take him on. I don't know why everybody's sitting around running from fear. We've got God on our side, and Saul brings David in. He says, you can't. You can't fight against, against, uh, against Goliath. Uh, he, he, he warns David that he, you're just a kid. And Goliath, he, he has many years of experience fighting and emerging victorious. Likely Goliath had never lost. And David was not deterred by any of these things. You see, David, David stood there and confidently looked at Saul and the other men that were around him. And David thought in his mind of a time when he was a shepherd he remembered two great trials that sprang upon him out of nowhere. Two great trials that he faced in order to keep his sheep safe, but even much greater than that, in order to keep himself safe. The first involved a lion, and the second involved a bear. And David, not only, David not only protected his sheep from certain death, but he also killed both of these animals, though they were faultless and they were far superior to David in strength. David concluded, as a result, that if God can deliver me from a lion and from a bear, then standing before Goliath would be no different. If God could do something like that, 
then God can certainly give me victory on this day. See, David acknowledged that the common denominator in these victories was not himself, but the common denominator was the Lord. And he also acknowledged that the Lord would have to deliver him against Goliath as well if he was to be an overcomer in this present trial. And don't you think that maybe in the back of David's mind, David thought to himself, well, what, what, what sense would it make for me to be anointed to be the next king of Israel if, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna die here on this battlefield today? Do you not think that maybe David was acting in faith? David's thinking to himself, you know, if, what, what point would it be for the man of God to come to my house and anoint me with oil to be the next king of the nation of Israel? If in just a few short days I'm going to go out into a battlefield and I'm going to die, I wonder if David thought, you know, I'm like Teflon. I got bulletproof here. I'm good to go. No one can mess with me because God has clearly revealed that I am to be the next king of the nation of Israel. Here's what, I, here's what I'm saying. What you are dealing with now is significant. I'm not trying to belittle what you're going through right now. But I, but I want you to understand that oftentimes it pales in comparison to what is coming. David's defeat of a lion and a bear saved his flock from destruction, himself from destruction. But listen, listen, by engaging with Goliath that day and defeating Goliath would save, listen, would save an entire nation from destruction. He would not have had the confidence to face Goliath, a much bigger foe with much greater implications without the experiences of defeating and overcoming these trials and obstacles in his past. A lot of times we get into the middle of a trial and obstacle and we get frustrated and we get weary, but what we need to understand, oh, this is, this is preparing me for something much greater down the road, preparing me to stand and to stand firm. Number five, very quickly, God's deliverance usually involves me exercising skills I have developed a proficiency in. God's deliverance usually involves me exercising skills that I have developed a proficiency in. You see, Saul armed David with his armor, verses 38 to 40. But David was not comfortable with these things. David was thankful for what Saul was trying to do to protect him, but ultimately knew, he knew, I, I can't face Goliath wearing armor that I've not proven. So instead, what did he do? The Bible says that David took his staff and his sling and he gathered five smooth stones from a brook. You see, David had not spent a lot of time wearing battle armor. He wasn't used to wearing a helmet of brass on his head or a, a, a coat of mail on his, uh, on his chest. Nor was he used to swinging a sword. He didn't, he didn't have access to those things. Likely, those were things that, that either only the rich people had or the older people had or, again, just the soldiers would have had and they would have been provided for them by the nation. David would not have had access to those things. But here's what David did have. He, he had a stick. He had a staff, and he got pretty good with that staff. Don't you suppose that maybe, maybe that staff had been instrumental in delivering him from the lion and the bear? Maybe he used that staff to keep the lion and the bear just far enough away uh, from him so that they could not lunge at him and, and they could not bite and devour him. Oh, David, don't you suppose he'd been like any young man sitting around? You know, sheep are sort of boring after a while, aren't they? You know, maybe he taught them to do some tricks, beg and heal and roll over and you know, that sort of thing, play dead. But maybe after a while, it's like, well, how many more tricks can I teach these sheep? And so maybe, maybe David developed a, a little system where he'd grab some stones and he'd, he'd see how far, how far away, how far away do I have to be before I can, and maybe he, maybe he even carved maybe a, a, a target on a tree somewhere and he began to practice using that, uh, that sling and those five stones. And he got real good at those sorts of things because it was just him there in that field. It was just him and those sheep and so he developed, listen, he developed some proficiencies, didn't he? And a staff and a sling with some stones. Wasn't real proficient swinging a sword 
wearing a, a coat of mail or wearing a helmet on his head. He didn't have a lot of proficiency in those things, but he, he was really proficient with a staff and with a sling and some stones. And, and as a result, listen, he said, I'm not comfortable going on the battlefield and facing Goliath with those things, but I am comfortable. I am comfortable with a sling and some stones and with a staff on, uh, on my person. And David took what was most comfortable to him and what he was most skilled with. Can I say that more often than not, God's deliverance comes by, by us using areas that we have worked to develop some level of strength and proficiency in. That's why the Bible tells us to hide God's word in our heart, that we might not sin against him. Some of you, you've, you've tried everything you know to get over a certain sin or a certain problem. And you've, you've tried quitting cold turkey, and you've tried you know, removing that object from your house. or you, you've, you've tried everything imaginable. Why don't, you, why don't you try what God tells you to try? Why don't you begin to hide his word in your heart? In other words, why don't you get so familiar, get as familiar with this book as David was with a staff and with a sling? See, the problem is most of us, most of us, our familiarity level with this book is about the level of David's familiarity with a sword and with the helmet of brass and with traditional armor. And David wasn't used to wearing those things. And as a result, David says, I'm not comfortable in those things. We ought to get proficient in some of these so that when the enemy comes, we are equipped with weapons that the Lord can use to give us deliverance. Finally and lastly, can I say number six, God's deliverance usually requires me to step on the battlefield. God's deliverance usually requires me to step on the battlefield. You know, David and in, in the, the whole army of Israel, he was the only one willing to draw near to the giant on the battlefield. Now, I got to thinking how often, how often did God deliver his people in a miraculous way without using some man? And you know, there's really not a lot of instances of that. By and large, by and large, the army was always present. They were there on the battlefield. They were ready to engage the enemy. I, I was thinking, you may be familiar with the story, but during the reign of King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles chapter number 32, the kingdom of, of Judah and the city of Jerusalem are under a, a, attack from a man by the name of Sennacherib, who is the leader of the Assyrians. And Hezekiah, he, he knows, he knows we're trapped and we do not have the strength to overcome Assyria. Sennacherib is too powerful, he's too strong for us, and, and there's nothing that we can do. And so he prays and he trusts in the Lord. And God did something so unusual, hardly ever happened. Without the, without the army lifting up their swords and, and, and girding themselves and heading down to the battlefield, God sent an angel one night, and that angel, according to Isaiah 37, slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night without anybody on the battlefield. Sennacherib wakes up the next day, and his whole army has been slaughtered. And he, he goes running back home, realizing that he's been defeated. And not a, listen, not a single soldier had to put their sword on and had to engage the, the, the enemy in the battlefield. That's an incredible story, isn't it? But I also want you to know that's an anomaly. Doesn't usually happen that way. Even when God is in the picture, no, more often than not, more often than not, God will require you, he will cry, require me to put on the armor of God and to step foot on the battlefield before he begins to intervene in a miraculous and an incredible way. Oh, you think to yourself about Jericho, at Jericho, God brought the walls down, didn't he? But not before the children of Israel marched around the city for six days, and on the seventh days, they marched around it seven times, and then they blew the trumpets, and then they shouted, and then God brought the walls down. 
You think about Gideon and his band of 300 men. Oh God, God caused the Midianites to be confused and to stampede and to turn on one another, but not before Gideon and his men blew their trumpets and smashed their pitchers and lit their torches and shouted a war cry. Here God would deliver David from Goliath, but not before David stepped onto the battlefield with his staff and his sling and his five smooth stones. The army behind David sat around and they waited for God to do something miraculous. Don't you suppose they were praying? Lord, would you do something about this man? We can't fight him. We can't face him. We can't overcome him. He's a champion. He's never lost. God, would you wipe him out? And day after day, Goliath stood and God never wiped him out until one day when one young man said, I'll, I'll face him. I'll go out onto the battlefield. I'll confront the enemy. And on that day, God did something incredible and something miraculous. What was God waiting for? God was waiting for someone to be brave enough, someone to be strong enough, to be bold enough to step onto the battlefield and engage with the enemy. And then, and only then, would God deliver. As we conclude this morning, you need to know, you need to know, every one of you need to know that the greatest giant in your life, the greatest giant in your life is sin and your sin nature. You should know that. And I have great news for you. You're saying, how am I going to fight that? How am I going to face that? How am I going to find victory over sin in my sin nature? You don't have to worry about it. See, Christ has already defeated those giants. And he stands ready. Listen, he stands ready to give you victory. So how does that victory come? According to Acts 16, 31, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. John 20, 13, 31, the Bible says, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Can I also say this in conclusion? Listen, there is no giant, there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome through the power and promises that are made to us through the divine nature given to men and women upon their new birth. Some of you, the giant that you need to face today has already been defeated in the person of Christ. You just need to believe on Jesus and be saved. Others of you, you have been saved, but you're still discovering, wait a minute, I'm still, I'm still dealing with giants. Oh, maybe not giants that can, that can send me to hell for all of eternity, but giants that are, 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 are wreaking havoc in my life nonetheless. How do I do, overcome those things? The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, according as his divine nature and power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Listen, you and I as believers, we do not have to live in defeat. We do not have to live in defeat to the giants and the obstacles that are threatening us and are overwhelming us. No, listen, God has given us all things in this book, in the person of his Holy Spirit, and even in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, we have all things to help us escape the corruption that is in this world. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. Some great truths from this particular text, aren't there? We're entering now into a time of the service that we call an invitation, and we have preached for the last, oh, 30 minutes or so, and we've made an appeal for individuals, for people, to, to make certain decisions. So you always preach for a decision. And that decision time is now. We call it an invitation. We're inviting you. You've heard the message. Now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? 
We said a moment ago that the greatest giant that anyone will ever face is the, is the giant of sin and the sin nature. You see, we're all born sinners. The Bible says we're born dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And if we, if we're, if we die the same way that we're born, in other words, we die in our sins and in our, in, our, in, our, in our trespasses, if we die that way, the Bible is clear that we'll spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. There must, listen, there must be a point, there must be a time in our lives in which we surrender ourselves and we surrender our flesh and we acknowledge that we're sinners and we call upon Jesus who was not a sinner, Jesus who came and he suffered and he bled and he died for us. But on the third day he rose again, proving, proving that he had the power over sin and over death and over hell.